This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. That was my brief, to be fearless, I think. It was to be fearless. I, I believe there's sort of a tipping point in everyone's life, and whether it comes when it comes when you're very young or when you're a bit older, there's a point where you, you just suddenly, if you're going to write, you sort of, you have to write. Even when I write about love, I end up writing about war. But it's not, I don't really want to write about war, but it just comes up. There's quite a lot of poetry in the contemporary mainstream is quite likeable. <laughs> and I, I find that I'm quite interested, without knowing why, in, in writing from a less necessarily likeable or a necessarily understandable point of view. I hope I'll always feel like a new poet because every poem feels like a new poem. Hello everybody and uh, welcome to this podcast organised by the Poetry Society. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, the issue of poetry review that I edited which is called Offending Frequencies. It was published winter 2012. My name is Bernadine Avarista, I'm a writer and occasional guest editor for various things. And I'm going to introduce um, each of the poets. We have Richard Scott, Edward Doger, Sophie Mayer and Wilson Shire. And they're all poets um, that I've put into Poetry Review. They're all, fairly, I would say, fairly new poets, and it's their first time in this issue of the magazine. And just to explain about the magazine, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, over a period of 12 months it's been guest edited, so I was the third guest editor. What I wanted to do with the issue was to show ex inclusiveness and expansiveness, variety. I wanted poetry that engaged with politics, culture in its widest sense, society, I also wanted experimentation. It was a real, real pleasure and surprise to be invited to do just one issue, uh, which in a way is ideal because it doesn't really take me away from my own work. And I just wanted to put in the kinds of poems that I feel are representative of various communities in this country, but also internationally. In the end, we had over 50 poems and over half of them were by women, as it happened. There were actually 20 poets of colour, which I'm sure is uh, a record <laughs> in Poetry Review, and lots of queer poems. And almost every poet in the issue who has poetry published in the issue is there for the first time. So they're all new to Poetry Review, and some are also new poets. Um, when I was growing up, I remember reading Poetry Review many, many decades ago, and it didn't speak to me. I felt, I didn't feel included, I felt alienated. Of course, the magazine's changed a lot since then, but I wanted to produce an issue where lots of different people who might feel marginalized, might feel alienated in various areas of society will feel included. Um, so that was my brief, to be fearless. It was to be fearless. And as I said, inclusive and expansive. Um, I've read the issue many times over and, you know, your poetry, every time I read it, I enjoy it. Um, I wanted poetry in the issue that was re-readable. Poetry that I could keep reading and still enjoy. And I would say that's true for the whole of the, of the collection. Definitely with your poetry, you know, I think it's full of riches. It's complex, it's beautiful, lyrical, also feisty, and sometimes outspoken. To begin with, how did it feel to be published in Poetry Review? Awesome. I felt, re I'm really um, appreciative that you invited me and that you published my work. It's not something that I really thought 
would happen. I didn't really think about it before. I knew about the poetry review, but um, it was, I got a lot of emails saying, you know, we saw the poem in there and it was great. And then I realized that it kind of opened um, my work up to a lot of people that would never really have come across it otherwise. So I think it's great. And I was so happy to see other two other Somali poets in there as well. And um, Ilmi Ali and uh, Diria. Sophie. It was so exciting for two reasons. One was this, you know, the August organ of record, which I, I had submitted to and, and had been rejected from, with very encouraging notes from Fiona Sampson, who was the previous full-time editor. But I'd got to the point where I thought, it's, it's never going to happen for me. What I do is too queer or too experimental or too erotic, I don't know. And then to feel that I was in a a conversation with a writer that I admire so much, Bernadine, that when you made the announcement on your Facebook page saying, this is what I'm looking for, it was such a breath of fresh air and so exciting that Poetry Review would approach you um, after doing 10 um, to bring that energy and that excitement, that generation to the magazine. So it felt like entering this historical conversation, here we are in Keats House, you know, ghosts and history, and then this very immediate conversation with with writers that I met through Chroma and met through read the ten readings and things like that. Lovely. Uh, would the gentleman like to contribute? Well, I felt um, really proud, really proud to have been chosen, and I suppose, well, I suppose I felt that I would always perhaps be excluded from a magazine like Poetry Review because, in some ways, it represents the establishment because it's so established and it's so old. Yeah, I felt, and also to be part of it is to belong to a big historical mm. conversation with everyone who's kind of edited it and everyone who's been in the magazine. And so I, I suppose I felt a little bit excluded. And, and when you said I was included, I was thrilled and also thrilled because the, the poems are openly queer and the poems mm. engage with gay issues. And I was really happy. And um, yeah, I guess and being here in Keats House is wonderful too. Yeah. Okay, lovely, Edward. You know, I've always admired much of the work that's been in Poetry Review and, uh, you know, it's always been, as you say, the sort of uh, magazine of record, as it were, and so I wanted to be in it for that reason. But then I found I had quite a, a sort of a strange awakening with actually being published alongside so many interesting disparate voices because in many ways it did awaken me to what Poetry Review... Um, has traditionally offered and also what it's offering in this particular issue. This is quite a shocking poetry review uh, and quite a shocking poetry review for me to be included in, I think, in some ways. Edward Doger, Half Ghazal. It's for my wife Renee and it has an epigraph from Mimi Calvati's Notes to the Minas Flower. The word Ghazal is of Arabic origin and means talking to women, women in Perda, with all that that implies. Half Ghazal. I flinch inside as you corroborate my name, which is your name now. You spell it out over the phone to a call centre in India. Your new surname, as foreign to you as the phone waller, the other end. Though the name itself was born and bred in the Himalayas in Hindi, it's long been reformed into English, into the name 
you now pronounce in your own non-native North American. It's a name you'll freely admit you'd rather not have taken, but have taken all the same, exchanging one unchosen name for another, uncasting yourself as Kohanim. And yes, I was proud you agreed to bear my name, to belong to my skin, to share the cloth of my sister's maiden name. But now, as you get used to an alias, I recall my mother, who wouldn't disown her married name, but lived with it, assimilated as my father's ex-wife, determined to keep the same last name as me. You begin again, D-O-E-G-A-R, and I blush at the burden of our name. Because you are new emerging poets, I think it would be interesting for people to know who you are, how you came to be poets, and where you are in your careers, or where you consider yourselves to be in your careers. Richard. Okay, yeah, sure. Well, um, I did an MA at Goldsmiths, and I was lucky enough to be selected to be a Jerwood Arvon ment mentee, and I was mentored by Daljit Nagra, which was fantastic. And along the way, I won the Wasafir New Writing Prize, and I've been published in Poetry London, and now Poetry Review. I guess poetry really began for me because I, I trained as a classical singer, and I still work somewhat as a classical mm. singer. And uh, poetry really began for me uh, with an appreciation of librettos. And um, when you sing, you have to be really consumed with the words that you're singing. And I was kind of, uh, I guess, putting all these fantastic sort of words into my mouth and learning them off by heart and stuff. And this is the effect that it, it had. I kind of ended up writing. Interesting. So when did you start writing poetry? I've been writing poetry, I'd say, for about four or five years now. Wow. Yeah. That's quite recent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess, I mean, I've kind of always written things before, but it, it never really got serious. And I, I believe there's sort of a tipping point in everyone's life. And whether it comes, you, when it comes when you're very young or when you're a bit older, there's a point where you, you just suddenly, if you're going to write, you sort of, you have to write. And I guess you're subject finds you and and although i've been talking about very sort of uh, genteel and, and lovely opera librettos although they often involve <laughs> a lot of death um, but um but i suppose my subject kind of found me and i was kind of surprised that um i started writing a lot about a lot of queer issues and about um, my life as a gay man and i don't know i, I guess the reason that i did that was because I, I felt like i loved poetry but i felt slightly excluded because i felt like queer poetry and poetry that spoke to me was kind of on the margins, and I felt that the people have to sort of say, actually, there's magic and there's beauty and there's poetry in, in gay love and gay mm -hmm. life, and, and that was the motivating factor for me to really start writing seriously. Um, Edward? Yeah, around the time that Richard was starting to write, I was starting to write seriously as well, and actually we met quite early on in both of our, um, you know, trying to write seriously times. We were both mentored by Dalja and he was really helpful for me. You hear people say that, oh, you're always kind of trying to write a good poem, but I really mean it. You know, like, I, I don't often get that feeling that th this is quite right yet. And for me, it's about becoming more sure of what a poem is. And also more sure of what, a, what, what I think a poem should be for the future. You know, I feel a lot of contemporary British poetry 
is incredibly nice and, and it's beautiful and it's really well made, really well made. Mm -hmm. And I feel I'm learning how to make something, but I don't feel yet I've discovered, you know, the alchemy moment. What were you doing before? What led you to poetry? I'm not really sure that I'm aware what the galvanising moment was. I think it was like a lot of people that probably came around a moment of stress in some forms, you know, uh, an awful lot of people turn to poetry at moments mm -hmm. of stress and mm -hmm. that seems natural enough. No, interesting. Okay, uh, Sophie? I would say almost the opposite to, to Edward, that I'm becoming less and less sure what a poem is the more I write and that's exciting for me. The more I read, the more I encounter different ways of doing poetry and this, this issue is an example of that. Um, I was both very blessed and in some ways slightly cursed to publish a half book, a shared book with Salt when I was 22. And I was very, I knew exactly what a poem was and what made a good poem. And so I've had a, over a decade of unlearning um, I lived in Canada for six years and encountered many different poetries there, including um, First Nations and Indigenous poetry and um, poetry by many of the um, settler cultures in Canada as well, and came back thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing. And was lucky enough to encounter Cromer, the magazine run by Sean Levine, and a small community of queer writers, queer and trans writers, who were trying to do something different. Uh, and to reinvent myself alongside them over the last six years. I hope I'll always feel like a new poet because every poem feels like a new poem. And recently I've been going back to, I don't know, maybe the source of my poetry, I'm Jewish, and I was raised relatively conservative, so very embedded in the Hebrew liturgy, which obviously has not much place for women. And so going back to some of the places where there are women's voices, like the Song of Songs and the Book of Ruth, and trying to hear mm. some of that language, having completely rejected it as totally patriarchal and homophobic, to go, no, actually it belongs to me. Mm. So that's very new for me. Yes. So how did you get to publish a book so young? Were you writing poetry from a young age? I published my first poem when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> in the school magazine, I have to say the first line was, I am an Adonis Blue, happy and gay. So, <laughs> it was, and the, the last couplet didn't rhyme, so I was already a queer experimental poet. Um, <laughs> I, educational privilege is the answer. I went to a private school on a scholarship and then went to Cambridge and I met John Kinsella, who founded SALT. He was an Australian writer-in-residence there and I took a writing workshop with him and he pushed everyone in that course so hard, as did his partner Tracy Ryan, who also taught a workshop. And then he said, you should do a book. And I went, okay, because I was really arrogant. <laughs> so a lot to do with privilege. But that confidence is, is the confidence that will produce a manuscript very young. Yes. Yeah. You know, you say arrogance, but it's also yeah. just confidence. And incredible mentorship. Like, you, you guys were talking about being mentored by Dalja. I don't think any poet writing now in this scene as big as it is and as complicated as it is with so many publishers we'd be doing getting anywhere without our mentors. Mm. Uh, awesome. Um, I went to a, uh, a workshop for teenagers who are interested in filmmaking and I met Jacob Samler, I was mm. there because he was heading it. 
and I was 15 then. Before then, um, I grew up in Brent, so I used to go to the libraries and I would read your books. And oh. <laughs> um, like, this isn't um, a setup, by the way. No. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was read you and like Edwige Dantica and Toni Morrison and Alice Walker, and I remember picking up a little book that was edited by Karen McCarthy. Hmm. Um, I think it was King. called. Yes. Yes. And I remember I was really interested in short stories, but not poetry because I'm from Somali background. Poetry that I grew up was Somali. And um, in school, we learn about poetry, but I felt really disconnected from the poetry they were teaching me. I didn't know about contemporary poetry in, in Britain. I didn't know about black British poetry. I didn't know even about American, um, African-American poetry that was going on. I had no connection to it until I met Jacob and he mentored me from the age of 15 to now. And he edited... You're still quite young, aren't you? I'm 24 and okay. he edited my manuscript. And without him, I, I don't know, I don't know. I'm meeting all that. Like, so I met Karen McCarthy and I'm meeting mm. you and I'm meeting all these people. I mean, I interviewed Alice Walker for an interview for a magazine and I just can't believe all of this has happened through Jacob. And I always say that if I didn't meet him, I probably would be like a hairdresser. Yeah, or something like that. <laughs> I don't think so, somehow. Can we just put a shout out for local libraries as well? Yeah. Because I yes. grew up in, in Edgware in Bonnet and... I don't know who the librarians were, but there was lesbian and gay fiction on those shelves. There were, you know, an incredible range of poets. I mean, British poets like Judith Cassantis and David Hawson, but then also um, American poets like Ellen Bass. Mm -hmm. And they were smuggled into that collection in this very conservative suburb. And I used to go and, like, (laughs) smuggle them out in my coat so Mm -hmm. that my my parents couldn't see what I was reading. So... Libraries. Absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't be a writer today if, you know, there wasn't a local library in Woolwich where I went every Saturday and bought books, <laughs> or read books, you know. But you mentioned Somali poets. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about contemporary or... No, like, um, I have a lot of family members. Like, there's a, a poet called Yam Yam who died recently and he was really big and Hadrawi and they're all, like, <laughs> related. So we grew up... My father's a writer as well. And it's just something that everyone does... We don't really talk about it, but the way that we respond to happy news or sad news or even our language is very rich with poetry and proverbs and we just speak in a way that's really like like a riddle. So that was very natural to me, but I didn't know that it was poetry until I started writing poems. So, so my next question is, how does culture in its very broadest sense, that will include, you know, racial identity, sexual identity mm. and so on, how does that shape and inform your work? And you've all touched on it almost a little bit but can we can we sort of tease out some more ideas about how that has made you who you are what if you have a bigger project with your writing for example Richard you said that the queer issue is big for you and you wanted to write the kinds of poems that you don't really see much of mm-hmm. certainly not in the mainstream I suppose I when I started writing poetry I felt really strongly that there were all these areas that were sort of important to gay men or certainly important to gay men when they're growing up and they're not really sort of referenced uh, in literature at all. And um, an obvious example is the poem that I wrote for Poetry Review, A Public Toilet in Regent's Park. Mm-hmm. And there's, if you're, if you're growing, any gay man will tell you, you know, that, you know, first sexual experiences or the first sexual experiences you hear about or read about in books, for whatever reason, often happen in places like that. And, and there's magic and there's celebration there. So I felt like I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of start writing about these places that were sort of... Um, I don't know, had previously been cast aside and thought of as um, shocking, not full of love, dirty, and I kind of wanted to reclaim them. So mm-hmm. I kind of was writing poems about saunas and about public toilets and mm-hmm. about cruising grounds and, and just trying to find the magic there. 
I was really taken by a quote, because Sherry Smith wrote an article in Poetry Review about queer poetry, and I was really taken with her discussing a quote of yours, Sophie, which is talking about how queer poetry must to be queer poetry embrace gay pride as well as gay shame. Mm -hmm. And I feel like uh, that's what good gay writing does. It kind of addresses the fact that not only are we trying to be proud and be like, actually, we deserve a place at any table, but also... Um, there has been all this shame associated with it and how can we address that in an artistic way? Richard Scott, Public Toilets in Regent's Park The men here are bird-footed feathering past the attendant's two-way mirror unperturbed by the colonising microorganisms Boledia, Kobisha, Shigellosis sliming across the yellowed groutings the fist-deep pool of brackish water quivering in the U-bend, the tile that reads, For information on venereal disease, telephone 01. All for the thrill of placing their knees on the piss-stained cold, the iris shimmering behind a hand-carved glory hole, a beautiful cock unfolding like a swan's neck from the Harris tweed of a city gent's suit, whispers, Gasps of contact echo inside each nested cubicle. But careful, the prying attendant will rattle her bucket and mop if she spies four shoes. Our men disperse suddenly, as mallards from the face of a pond. Awesome. My work is heavily influenced by the fact that my my father was a, a writer and he was exiled from his country of birth, which is Somalia. And I was, I was born in Kenya. I came here when I was one years old. But this feeling of not belonging that has stayed with me my whole entire life that I've lived here and trying to um, kind of reclaim um, my voice as a, as a black woman, as a black British and Muslim woman, and the way that you're, you're given all these, um, like these narratives and these identities that don't belong to you, that you don't connect with in any way whatsoever and through writing and kind of creating this space for myself I find that this I get emails all the time from all these women from different backgrounds all over the world that just say like you know thank you because um when when I started writing I couldn't find a Somali writer I couldn't Mm -hmm. find Muslim writers that I could connect with in any way I felt like it was very male dominated Mm -hmm. and it was just I just couldn't so I write from there, I write from a place of displace, a place of otherness and exile, and also just trying to have these two cultures and languages and um, and kind of make peace with it, because there's so many other people that exist like that, like in this kind of third space. That Do you feel that you're writing for a particular readership? Does that come into your thinking when you're writing? No, I write what I like. And then I hope people who like what I like, like it. (laughs) No, I never think about it. Because if I do, then it would go too political. And I'm not interested Mm. in politics like that. And I don't like writing about religion. But I feel like all Mm. of it kind of just comes up in the work, like the undertones. And I like that it's more natural than me thinking I want to write about immigration. I think it just comes up because I am the daughter of immigrants. Mm -hmm. So even when I write about love, I end up writing about war. But it's not, mm. I'm not, I don't really want to write about war, but it just comes up yeah, because, yeah. Well, Sanshire, this poem is called What We Have. Our men do not belong to us. Even my own father left one afternoon is not mine. 
My brother is in prison, is not mine. My uncles, they go back home and they are shot in the head, are not mine. My cousins, stabbed in the street for being too or not enough, are not mine. Then the men we try to love say we carry too much loss, wear too much black, are too heavy to be around, match too sad to love. Then they leave and we mourn them too. Is that what we're here for? To sit at kitchen tables, counting on our fingers the ones who died, those who left and the others who were taken by the police or by drugs or by illness or by other women. It makes no sense. Look at your skin, her mouth, these lips, those eyes. My God, listen to that laugh. The only darkness we should allow into our lives is the night. And even then, we have the moon. Edward. I certainly don't have um, an agenda when I put pen to paper. And yet, I guess I, I'm sort of increasingly surprised as I start to gather a few poems together that they seem to have common mm. themes, you know. For instance, I, I had no idea that I was interested in race, really. <laughs> but it turns out I've written quite a few poems about that. And in, in lots of different ways, I tend to find I, I end up writing quite a lot of poems that look at a nasty way of thinking, you know, don't necessarily... Uh, quite a lot of poetry, you know, in the contemporary mainstream is quite likeable. <laughs> and... I, I find that I'm quite interested, without knowing why, in, in writing from a less necessarily likeable point of view. I'm always shocked, you know, that even when we start to see more diverse writing coming up, it'd be very rare that we'd read a poem, say, that has a pro-fox hunting or death penalty <laughs> or, you know, stance uh, that puts a a strong argument for that and you know I, I guess I'm quite intrigued by that. And do you feel constrained in any way or inspired by traditional European literary forms, poetry forms? So for example Sophie you said you had to unlearn what you learned. Mm. I mean was that learning a particular way of writing poetry that's subtle and neat and tidy and perhaps adhering to a particular pattern? I, you know, I think the, the well-wrought urn is definitely something that a lot of poetry is crammed into and is the way maybe you're taught, or certainly I was taught in primary school, that poems have to rhyme, they have to have an image, and maybe a symbol, <laughs> <laughs> and they should, you know, say something very clearly at the end. And then I, I went through the sort of conventional English A-level English degree which was, was for two years extremely constraining and like a lot of medieval poetry and then in the third year it was like wow I can suddenly read things that were written in the 20th century by women, people of colour, you know, non-aristocrats and, and some of them devised these other ways of speaking so I'm, I'm really grateful for that education. I, I teach creative writing and I say to students because I've, I've taught at Middlesex um, and the creative writing course there is a lot of students who are doing journalism and I say to them okay this is part of learning to be part of the conversation so that when you go in to pitch something to the BBC or you go 
to the Guardian, you know what all the people who went to private schools and Oxbridge know. You know, learn it, read it, you don't have to copy it. It's useful to have that. So part of unlearning it was not just breaking away from that way of writing, but being able to stand outside it and take what I want from it. Mm. So to feel that bits belong to me appropriatively, and like with my poem in Poetry Review, I can say that the sonnets are a Tudor Kama Sutra if, if I want to. Um, and that doesn't mean that I don't think the sonnets are a work of great artistry, but I can read them from my queer perspective. So unlearning is not just throwing everything out, but also coming back to that place where you can say, okay, it's patriarchal and classist and, and racist, and I can take what I want and turn it against itself. Sophie Mayer, an elegy for the sonnet as instrument of torture. So, Wyatt, you felt guilty, did you? Guilt dribbling down the line of your body like cum leaking from your courtier mouth. You didn't swallow, couldn't. What was the etiquette then anyway amidst the farthingales and codpieces? Did your tongue dance a volta with the clitoris of the king's mistress? HBO says so, but TV's a reliable guide to fuck all, and certainly not to fucking. But there's a Tudor Kama Sutra not quite encoded. I'm certain, and who's to contradict me, in Shakespeare's sonnets and in yours. A diagrammed manual of swan's wing hair torture, needle-pricked, play-piercing, studded collars, whip-smart naked hunts, cock-ringing, double blindfolds, precise stiletto stabs to the breast and groin. Oh, how you all loved torture, falling under it, tumbling to the inseamed bed for a thumbscrew. Our inheritance from you a mouthful of crown jewels, a snail trail of slipped identities and dirty linen, all buckled to a verse form that plays daisy chains with rhymed pairs, legs entwined in exquisite crucifixions, whose ecstatic utter shudder is its quietus, autopoetic asphyxiation. Richard? Um, in terms of traditional forms and stuff, I suppose what I feel most influenced by is the writers that I really admire. And when I read, it was kind of so shocking reading them because I felt like they were sort of opening me up. And the first writers who really spoke to me like that, I suppose, were Mark Doty, because mm. I, was, I was reading a, a gay poet who could write about gay things, put them centre stage. And Michael Hoffman, who's a fantastic poet, who really publicly sort of says, oh, rhyme has no place in poetry anymore. And I was like, oh people can say things like that, <laughs> um, which is fantastic. And then he writes these, these really long, almost sort of impossible lines, which you think shouldn't have, shouldn't be in poetry. And then, and then Sharon Olds, who mm-hmm. writes this kind of what people wrongly sort of label as confessional verse. And, and actually, you know, it seems very long and rambling and it seems like the line breaks sort of almost are nonsensical, but it's actually sort of quite tight and it sort of takes the form of these hymns that she remembers from her childhood. And in my head, I sort of try to... Those are my sort of guidelines for writing. I'm influenced by them and I, and I try and think, what decisions did they make? And, and I try to let that filter into my writing. Yes. Um, Edward? I'm very much at the learning and then I'm looking forward to unlearning. In that 
for me, I find form very helpful in terms of to make, to help me make something. So I do use quite a lot of traditional forms in terms of to make me think in a way that's less my conscious mind doing what it would do, which is generally reductive and making it a bit more of an easy route to an easy conclusion. And the form tends to kick that out of the door and sort of go, no, think of a better word. So, mm. you know, I, I've got great admiration for people who are able to, to write well without the stabilizers of form. Mm. Um, but I really, just from a technique point of view, I, I tend to need it. And is there anything you want to add, Orson? Um, I hate form and structure and well, iambic pentameter and all that rubbish. I, I studied creative writing in university and I struggled with it a lot because I write mainly from free rights and it's inspired deeply by film, like um, a lot of narrative and overheard conversations on the night bus and music and stuff like this. And I download a lot of film scripts. So it's not a lot of poems that inspire the way I write. So the form of the poems they don't really so, so you download film scripts and I read them and then I watch the film and then I <laughs> you read them before you watch the film yeah well, that's interesting I just I like speech and it's you find a lot of it in my work as well because I like when people talk to one another so that's a lot in my poems is there anything you want to say I guess just I, I would love to hear more about who people hang out with poetically. I mean, you've talked mm. about Jacob Sam Rose, but are there pl places that you're reading or publishing projects that you're doing mm. collaboratively? Like, mm. I, I'm interested to know what communities are touching mm. in this room. Um, I'm published by Flip Tie, so that's like my family for mm. a very long time. Nee is the, um, is the head of that um, publishing house. But I belong to Malaika's Kitchen, so Malaika Book has been like a poetry hero for me since I was a teenager. Can you explain what that is? Malaika's Kitchen is a workshop. It kind of started off, right, in her, in her kitchen uh, with writers like Roger Robinson and Jacob Salmon Rose and me and Malaika and, and many other poets and some poets in Chicago as well. And they just used to come together and do workshops in her kitchen. It started off as something like Between Friends and then they brought out a book. I think it's called Storm Between hands or fingers so they're really incredible and it's great to belong to that but um also i have a lot of friends who are poets in america and canada and i feel like sometimes i kind of live over there mm. but in my brain like not physically so yes. so your connection with them is through the internet or um, do you know them personally personally because i go um, i've been i lived in new york for a while yes and so they there's some really incredible work going on around there especially of my generation so um, the internet is great, like stuff like Tumblr and Twitter and stuff like this. It shows me to a lot of new writers mm -hmm. and stuff that's coming out, especially of like queer writing and mm. writing from people of colour and stuff like this. So I, I can email you a lot of stuff. I, I, I find the American poets are so much freer. Absolutely, 100%. You know, yeah. We need to learn from them. Yeah. Richard. I help with you quite a lot. Yeah. Richard Edward. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel I was very lucky to meet uh, Edward very early on um, when we were sort of tr learning to write or learning still learning to write, which we are. Uh, no, I was very lucky to meet Edward and, and we we went to the Faber Academy and oh. we met some great people there and, and we still keep in touch. Um, was that a, one of the big courses, six months? Was, or? Yeah, that was one of the six months oh, course. Right. That's how we met. And I've been really lucky to meet people along the way and I've been really lucky to have a mentor in Dalgett. 
but from, I'm quite jealous of what you were talking about, this <laughs> the massive community. And, and I, I suppose I, I feel um, really grateful for what I have, like really grateful for the friendships I've made. Um, and I guess writing can feel quite lonely. It's a bit of a cliche to yeah. say, but, but it can feel quite lonely. Yeah. And it's good to have um, a trusted first reader, which is what I definitely have in Ed. And, and um, yeah, that's... And a poetry school as well, I, I also go to, and I think it's a marvellous institution. <laughs> it's also one that people can access if they're not based, you know, based all over the country, mm -hmm. or even if they can't get to a, a workshop, there are online workshops mm -hmm. as well. So it's certainly worth having a bit of a think about their website or looking at that. Sophie. Oh. Um, communities. <laughs> I, I sort of want to hear about other people, but I, I can't, I just can't sort of recommend Facebook. <laughs> Highly enough. I probably the two people I talk to on Facebook, one is a poet who also has a young son. So you can't always get to every event that you want to if you're doing child raising. For for a long time when I came back to London I sort of went around going, Are you my mummy? Are you my mummy? At lots of poetry <laughs> events. Um feeling a bit lost because Toronto was such a tight and also accessible community. It was very mm. open to people just showing up and getting involved. And I feel like Facebook has just opened things out massively in terms of events. And I I organised last year, edited two anthologies, rapid response anthologies through Facebook, one for Pissy Riots, which we put together in a month just by asking people on Facebook for poems and 110 people gave us poems. Mm -hmm. And then one called Binders Full of Women, which we put together in two weeks for the election with 22 poets. So I'm a bit in love with, like like Warson was saying, with the possibilities of, of social networking for international yeah. community as well. Mm. Okay, mm. this has been absolutely fantastic. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit www.poetrysociety.org.uk.